This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing my book. So I will, of course, kick us off. My book is called The Chronic Crisis of American Democracy, The Way is Shut. In the book, I argue that the American economy is gradually subjecting Americans of nearly all classes and backgrounds to enormous amounts of economic stress. Since World War II, falling trade barriers have made it easier and easier for oligarchs and corporations to move money around the world. This capital mobility made it increasingly difficult to maintain maintain high post-war tax rates. It reduced the leverage of labor unions, wages stagnated, and a weakened tax base has led to cuts in public services. The more mobile capital becomes, the harder it is to reduce this mobility. When complex supply chains are disrupted, inflation rises. When jobs and investment move overseas, unemployment and underemployment increase. As the rich get richer, they not only gain more influence over the political system, they gain influence over the economy, and they become able to economically punish politicians who try to challenge them. Over time, politicians figure out that it doesn't pay to try to solve this problem. They stop trying to do large-scale economic reform, and they increasingly conform to the imperatives of this competitive global economy. But the voters suffer under this system. Their resentments build, and they vote for politicians who promise to make things better. To obtain the support of these disgruntled voters, politicians have to find ways to blame the situation on non-economic factors. Voters who don't go to college are encouraged to blame foreigners, minority groups, and immigrants. Voters who do go to college are encouraged to blame the voters who don't go to college. Over time, the workers and the petty bourgeoisie who don't go to college are politically marginalized by the professionals who do. Left-wing movements McGovernize. They kick out poorly educated workers, privileging the interests of educated professionals. The rump professionals still make money by becoming the faithful servants of the rich. The fallen professionals are paid little more than workers. To differentiate themselves, they identify heavily with a set of progressive cultural positions. At the same time, the right develops a cultural politics that lampoons this professional culture. Increasingly, these two cultural poles become fearful of one another. Instead of participating in politics to solve the economic problem, voters participate in politics to negate and frustrate the opposite cultural pole. The two poles appear authoritarian to one another, but in the United States there are no authoritarian models that enjoy wide credibility. Both the progressives and the conservatives believe themselves to be defending democracy from the fascism or communism of their opponents, but the progressives are largely committed to radical democracy, descriptive representation, or the introduction of European social democratic procedures. The conservatives are largely interested in national liberalism, symbolic representation, or old-fashioned civic republicanism. But the two sides are suspicious of one another. They think the commitment to democracy is just a cover for something sinister. So, as hope fades, fear compels them to give their pound of flesh to the two parties. Over time, this cultural conversation gets weirder, and more voters recognize it as fundamentally pointless. The meanings of liberty, equality, and representation are revised to validate the attitudes of progressive and conservative movements. 
The right waters liberty down until it means little more than non-interference by the state into private affairs. The left waters equality down until it means little more than an equal distribution of offices or wealth among identity groups, especially racial identity groups. Representation becomes focused around cultural signaling rather than meaningful action. Many people get sucked up into these debates, wasting their lives arguing over terms that have lost their vitality and their capacity to deliver meaningful change. But other voters catch on. They realize this discussion is increasingly irrelevant to them. They try to withdraw from politics into a series of enclaves, faith, family, fandoms, and futurism. But these enclaves aren't safe. Professionals make their way into the faith space, using religion as a device to extract political action. The family becomes increasingly difficult to economically sustain, as wages stagnate and couples run out of time and energy to care for children. The cultural struggles are injected into fandoms as companies pit progressive and conservative fans against each other in a bid to defend increasingly mediocre output. The futurists argue that eventually all of this economic change will work out, either because the tech billionaires will lead us into paradise or, through their failures, create new revolutionary possibilities. But while materially secure STEM professionals can be patient and wait for a new dawn, most of the population sinks deeper into despair. This despair, however, involves a confrontation with the real, with the situation that much of the rest of the population is denying and trying to avoid thinking about. I close the book with a chapter evaluating, one last time, the prospects for reform and revolution. I play around with the idea of a subversive organization that tries to infiltrate the two-party system by running candidates in both Democratic and Republican primaries, but there are so many ways that can go wrong. I discuss revolutionary politics and why there is so little of it. There's an epilogue where I go into the history of the book, how it came about. As this is my own work, it goes without saying that I am quite fond of it. It also shouldn't surprise you that I feel this summary is entirely inadequate. But then the book is 70,000 words, and this little intro is just a 1,000. The book is written at an 11th grade reading level. It's dedicated to my parents and to all who labor so that others may write. It's a sincere effort to help ordinary people understand why the political system is so unresponsive and useless. It's my hope that in reading the book, you'll get over whatever hopes or fears you may have about the American political system. It's really a very undynamic system. It's not capable of doing altogether very much. If we can get into a state of despair about it, I think that will, in the long run, be more useful than the current fear-based politics. After all, fear is hope's twin. Fear is based on the idea that your enemy's hope is well-founded. And in the United States, nobody's hope is well-founded. Anyway, I wrote the book, and if you want to know what I think, you can read it. For the best price, go to the publisher's website at link.springer.com. Now, I've wanted to know what Helen and Nina think about my book for a very long time. So let's hear from them. Helen, you first. What did you think? Well, I thought it was fantastic. I really did. I thought it was like extremely clearly written. And obviously, it's like it's full of the kind of ideas that we've discussed here as well. Um, yeah, I mean... I, there's, there is a, there is a lot to say. I and mean, there's certain kind of uh, you 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 come up very you're very good at coming up with sort of like categorizations of things, or sort of rationalizing things down in sort of categories. And I do I think the the fa faith, family, fandoms, and fundamentalism is like is obviously very very key. Another idea that we've discussed a lot, but I think is absolutely key is the um, 
nature of this. I, I was talking to somebody in America who's a college professor who'd said that they felt they had sort of read what was going on as, a, as an issue of um, geographical divide. And I think that's absolutely not the case. And I think, as, as you put it, the um, fallen professional or educated class, people who've gone to university um, and even people who haven't, I think there's a there's a really interesting divide there. And how um, these uh, groups oppositionalize um, to avoid the truth of what's going on. And I think the thing is, the truth of what's going on is it's very material, and I think your reading is absolutely correct. I can entirely agree that the, 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 that the problem, the issue today is capital mobility, which leads us to not be able to get a grip on it, partly because states, in order to have um, power over everything, need to tax. And if you are out of tax, then you can't be controlled. And so this really does a number on politics, because obviously the state politics has to do with the state. So it's interesting that we're sort of in this realm of like hyper politics, as some people have said, um, where people have become more and more and more uh, vociferous about politics. Politics has become something actually rather apolitical and more like a fandom, as you say in in the book, um, and not about the actual um, act of tarrying with the positions of multiple people in dialogue. I mean, that's like what politics is. It's not an identity category or having the right beliefs. Um, and it's interesting even, you know, like the arts... Uh, and we, you know, I feel like I, I'm guilty of this as well. You, you, the, the sort of knee-jerk ideological position is to read art for its like moral expression rather from art as such. And it's as if you know politics have overtaken everything, but politics have overtaken everything precisely because it's not politics anymore. It's sort of this apolitical shimmer, sand and politics. And it's partly because, or largely because of the capital mobility, meaning that states are in the descendancy, not supremacy and obviously you know historically there have been um left-wing criticisms of status status tied to capital and things like that um but if we read you know what the potential of a state is um to execute on behalf of the good and the people and to redistribute this is not possible at all and i think this should be the aim to sort of like transfer um the state's prerogative from uh, being, you know, completely a tie to capital as as a, but rather as a mitigator against capitalism. And I think that's a what it is in its best sense. So I feel like, you know, the what the you know you you what you express about the left. I mean, it's obviously obviously you're kind of trying to sort of in a way um, raise this idea of despair as the last point of ideology where you can really confront reality. And obviously, it's interesting because I felt like there are loads of sort of like um um in like ethical similarities with different um, insights from different uh, realms. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but, you know, the, the, what is, the, the various stages of grief, you know, you have like bargaining, blah, 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 blah. And almost like despair, rock bottom is a position where you can actually sort of get to the point of accepting and digesting and um, symbolizing the truth of the, the, the situation you want to avoid to actually do something about it. And, you know, this, it obviously... I felt like your book was very Hegelian. Maybe, maybe I'm biased, and also in a sense uh, where Freud is in its lineage to, to to Hegel and also Marx. That there is something about ordinary unhappiness. That the process of analysis really is to do with getting um, the human subject to be able to digest the reality in which they live and act accordingly. And um, ordinary unhappiness replaces. Uh, fantasy, even though we need fantasy to keep going, but uh, a toxic fantasy, which um, 
is sustained through uh, self-sabotage because if you ever got the fantasy, you'd realize it didn't exist because we live in a, a dialectical uh, and contradictory universe. So you replace the cycle of uh, utopian thinking, self-sabotage, scapegoating and enemy making with ordinary unhappiness where you can build, you know, you can work with the reality you have as it is, not as you wish it to be. Um, and therefore, work towards those things that guide your subjectivity, you know, your fantasy ideas that that you were born with, the way you desire and stuff like that, or that you were born into language with. Um, but also, you know, it made me think of the uh, introduction to the critique of Hegel's philosophy, right, with the um, uh, picking the living flower, right? So, you know, this kind of confrontation with the, with the, the ersatz flowers that, that cover the chains and the chains being capital mobility shitting on us all, all, everybody, as we said in, in multiple episodes, but um, and how inequality is not good even for the wealthiest. But um the what was I gonna say that it's yeah that 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 um hmm, lost my train of thought. I'm doing I have a whole list of notes, but I just sort of just to go on without notes, but I'll go to my notes because I can't remember what I said. But anyway, the um picking the living flower is something is the act that you do you know, in reality as it is, rather than working with these sort of plasticky, shitty, fake flowers that are covering the chains. But obviously you have to, to be able to work to break the chains, you have to um, see them and understand them and symbolize them and digest them and then pick the living flower. But it is interesting because this, it it really, um, what you're talking about in terms of um, how in a sense you know, as Mark says, everything that is solid melts into air. So in a sense, I think what you're talking about is how the nature of capital today has almost dissolved politics, the kind of politics that we talk about and aspire to in the kind of thinking that we do into this aesthetic fandom type politics, this sort of form of hyper politics, which doesn't actually do the job of politics, which is changing material reality, but rather is a veil um, sort of dancing around to prevent an actual tarrying with the situation that is occurring right now. Um, so in a sense, this in a Hegelian sense is the dynamic of the bad infinite. So it's um, the bad infinite works on denying contradiction in reality. So when Hegel talks about the end of history, the end of history is not like Fukuyama has a really bad take on this. I know you like you talk about Fukuyama a little bit in the book, but um, the bad infinite is sustaining a possibility. I mean, you, you talk about fa false hope or whatever, but it it di it transforms dialectical thinking. So the end of history is where you acknowledge and where um, the social structure acknowledges the dialectical nature of reality, the contradictory emancipatory moment that is always now. And that like, everything is born of contradiction. Subjectivity is born of contradiction. And all systems are contradictory. You point out, obviously, very well in this book, the contradictions that mark American democracy. And this is not necessarily, you know, like um, a bad thing per se, but it is the nature of it. And to come to terms with it and make it work better for us, we must understand the contradictory nature of everything, including democracy. So um, the bad infinite is a form of oppositional thinking that sets up a possibility of a non-contradictory universe which always must be to come. Also, I mean, like you have the conservative way of thinking, which says that there was a non-dialectical reality in the past. So nostalgia for something that never was. But um, capitalism operates on this sort of forward progress because it's always about you're lacking now, 
but this can be solved in the future with the purchasing of commodity or the um, expansion into new terrains or you know the promise of the future. So the hope industry is the bad infinite, and the bad infinite also is the logic of capitalism. So capitalism has destroyed politics to replace politics with capitalist logic. So in its best sense, the politics is the end of history, right? In a sort of de democratic tarrying with the contradictory and um, conflicting desires that emerge when two or more dialectical speaking subjects are managing a common living situation. Politics is not having the right opinion or seeing or progressing towards an imagined non-dialectical future possibility. It's the tarrying with everybody who has different ideas. And the thing is, this the, the non we've talked about this many times, but the, the 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 utopian future. And you know, it's interesting, I find it so interesting that there are like serious quote unquote leftists who call themselves, brown themselves as utopian. I mean, if Marx is, you know, the, the sort of like canonical leftist or the uh, leftist or whatever, it's like um he literally explains how this is the right-wing position and it is the extreme capitalist position, right? And so in order, because we live in a dialectical universe, born of the Big Bang, there is no utopia. There is a broken dialectical reality in which human speaking subjects with an unconscious uh, must, uh, you know, are, are um, left to create as best of, uh, best of it that they can. As soon as you engage in utopian thinking, which becomes more and more and more of a human tendency, the more toxic things get. So I know Todd McGowan's talked about um, how when capitalist is, capitalism is at its apotheosis and therefore at its most unequal and exploitative, those who are uh, exploited and harmed by it and who are sold an ideology which denies the reality of capitalism itself become more and more desperate and desperate to believe that capitalism can provide the hope that it promises. And they turn to reactionary, um, you know, this is the example of the 20th century Middle Europe uh, political movements, fascist, um, where they create a scapegoat behind whom, the contingent scapegoat behind whom the utopian future exists. And so we see this on the left, quote unquote, on the right, and also in the center where um, Everybody is in denial. These these political, you know, these um, I would say confessional political tropes, rather than let's say philosophical positions, according to what you know we can define these these categories, political categories as. Um, they uh, must always sustain an enemy to sustain behind the enemy a contingent future which would be perfect. So rather than tarrying with the contradictions of capitalism, which are causing all the problems. They are addicted to politics. And of course, addiction, we've talked about this many times, is a addiction, not speaking um, from like the Greek. So not being able to um, understand, digest and symbolize and, and really speak of what the reality of the political the political economy actually is. And this sustains the. So in a way, I think a lot of what you're saying is very similar to AA, the logic of AA, which I think is um, very, very good. Um but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I also really like what you talk about in terms of education and how um, a utopian um, 
how you know these the, these movements of these liberal movements uh, where the left really became in like the Tony Blair's Labour movement a left wing of capital and not really left wing at all. Therefore, um, instead of dealing with the material conditions which you would hope a left wing party would actually do, it papers over the material conditions with promises. But these promises then are part become uh, veils and. Um, end up repressing the contradictions of capitalism even further and sustaining them. So I think your take on how uh, policies for education um, and the financialization of education has really like marked our moment and how it's really quite painful and difficult and horrible, the situation that we're in and how this relates to those who are quote unquote educated and those who are quote unquote not according to the university system. But anyway, I could go on. I think it's great. Everybody read this book. It's brilliant. Thank you for writing it. Thanks, Helen. All right, let's hear what Nina thinks. Yeah, I agree. I, it's, uh, you know, it's an honor to be on a podcast with someone who's written something that's so uh, such a great contribution to the current moment. And I think it, it really... Um, does deserve reading and I again I um, echo Helen's words um, in terms of saying to people that they should try and get hold of a copy of this book I mean it's kind of the whole academic book market is a bit frustrating in and of itself but I think there are ways of getting this book at least for a more reasonable um, (laughs) price and um, no doubt uh, Benjamin will be speaking about some of these ideas on other in other places as well as here um so yeah i i did really uh, I, I enjoy is not perhaps so quite the right word because it is a very uh, very sober diagnosis um of the i suppose stasis which is another word for civil war, war of course but uh, a kind of um inherited structure of politics uh, in the US, but it also is applicable elsewhere in slightly different ways. Obviously, uh, there's slightly different systems, but um, I think there is a general feeling uh, also in Europe, in in the UK in particular, of, um, well, elsewhere, of uh, a sort of intractability um, to the situation, which then spirals off into increasingly abstract fantasies uh, maybe at both extremes. And I think one of the successes of this book, um, as in keeping with Benjamin's approach on this podcast and elsewhere, no doubt, is a certain kind of mature reasonableness, right? So it's it's not uh, going too far down any of these sorts of paths of, uh, you know, a kind of fanatical or uh, sort of... Um, a loyalist position or some kind of uh, polemic or anything like that, right? Like it's an avoidance of, of, of taking any of those stances, even though there is a kind of perhaps attraction we see often on the ultra left, a kind of desire to take an extreme position, um, but also in, in relation to art and culture, questions of transgression and so on. So it's, it's not, it's deliberately not doing all of those things, but what that allows for, I think is a kind of deeper analytic, uh, dispassionate, take without without being kind of um haughty or patronizing um to any of the groups or positions that it's talking about right like it's it's an engaged book but it's not uh it's not hysterical or fanatical or or partisan i suppose is what i mean and i suppose that's quite rare because i think it even the most um uh analytic people 
you can unconsciously understand that they have a prior commitment uh, to left or left or right or center. Uh, and I think it's very rare to be able to take a step back and to talk about all of these these things in a way um, that gives them their due um, and sees beneath some of the logics in order to explain people's motives, uh, again, without reducing those motives to anything like a pathology or something to be pitied or something to be dismissed, you know, and, and because in a way our politics has become um, nothing other than a kind of just binary, dichotomous uh, rivalry. Uh, I saw this firsthand at the National Conservatism Conference where I spoke recently, um, where you ended up Yes, with these kind of gestures towards an anti-woke politics, which would get a little cheer every time someone said anything that was anti-woke, you know, just as a kind of little sweetie uh, for the audience. But you also had people engaging in this uh, oppositional logic of communists. Um, and then, of course, on uh, on the other side, you have the left engaging in this oppositional logic, accusing everyone of being a fascist. So you end up in this absolutely um, historically passe uh, and very unhelpful uh, sort of, uh, you know, mudslinging as if these are the only two existing positions and we're still stuck in, the you know, a, a sort of that particular left-right divide. Um, and I think what, what Benjamin's book, uh, one of the things that it, it very obviously uh, revealed, revealed to me um, is the the durability, the sort of the horrible durability <laughs> of the of the economic system, it, particularly in relation to questions of oligarchy and corporations. And I think this is very, very important because it's all about identifying these these interests and these pressures um, and getting behind the superficial, you know, culture war, the super superficial imposition of previously. Uh, understood political frameworks which no longer really apply but all they do is just offer succor to one side supposed side or the other right so i think everybody is hopefully tired of that oppositional logic and is looking for a serious analysis which this book offers precisely of the the real state of things economically and politically and in that sense i think it's it's right to go down the route of despair and it's it addresses this question as well it it's you know precisely in the final chapter which is called what if this book is wrong um and it begins by uh well it, it, the opening of that that chapter six is is this is a bleak book um and you know it, it's true that it has that effect but i think there's a form of liberation which comes to a kind of despair which is which i guess is helen's already mentioned which is a sort of the clarity of the rock bottom i suppose so it's it's like it the, the hope lies in the analysis, if you see what I mean. Like, I think the yes, you, you know, to, to, to reveal or have this revealed, this kind of confrontation with, okay, this system is basically intractable. It's really hard to reform. There's no revolution. It's just a lot of people shouting at each other. And most people are not that interested in politics, but they're just getting more and more depressed. Their quality of life is, is going down. There are all these kind of symptoms um, of, of precisely that kind of depression um, and we might want to make a distinction between depression and despair. I don't know if that's going to be politically uh, useful. Might be um, the the only the thing I I kind of maybe wanted to pick up on just because I think it it asks well it it poses a, a question a deeper question a philosophical question um, for me which is um, 
in in typically reasonable Benjamin Studebaker style, there is a kind of presentation of the uh, the Republicans and the sort of Democrats and the kind of tendencies. Um, and there is a, uh, I think, sorry, I'm trying to find the exact uh, uh, pages. It's, um, yeah, so it's in the chapter two, which is called False Hope. Um, and it's where Benjamin is presenting, um, uh, among other things, a kind of rights obsession with culture um, and suggesting that one of the, the, the ways in which the culture war plays out is on this question of, individual responsibility versus a kind of uh, consumerist culture of desire. Uh, again, these are topics we've talked, tried to talk about on a deeper level, right? So so the culture war obviously sort of plays out and, you know, I don't know, drag queen story hours and one had, ah, you know, Christian fundamentalism, oh no, on the other, you know, all of these questions of, 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 of uh, desire and the, and the constraint of desire, let's say. Um, and... I was just maybe I was particularly interested in this this section about the individual and the, the idea that right wing the right wing position is is to hold individuals to account that, that there's a, or at least superficially at least to say no no it's the individual's responsibility to take um, hold of their own desires and to not um, just go down this route of 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 saying that all of your desires are good you know. Um, and obviously, there's there is a left wing critique of the the of consumption as well, consumerism, um, something I tried to write about in 2009, even uh, in the one dimensional woman, in the way in which feminism was being kind of co opted into a consumerist project. It's a very slight um, critique in a way. Um, but I was very, I, I think, because my talk at NatCon recently was about the individual, and it was precisely about a critique of um, the idea of the individual on the right. Actually, this is what I was trying to do. I mean, of course, for my pains, I, for, for even speaking at NatCon is, is you know, an abhorrent, terrible thing for me to do. How how could I speak at such an event with people who have such horrible views? But one of the things I was trying to say about this idea of the individual is that we profoundly misunderstood it right from the beginning that the individual was never meant to be this separate person. The word individual comes from the Latin, which basically is like the word indivisible. And it's to do with the Trinity, you know. So, so when the Christianity talks about the individual, they're talking about the indivisibility of the Trinity, right? It has nothing to do with uh, this idea of separate individual people, right? Of course, there are words that we might use like conscience and soul and, uh, you know, there's a certain maybe religious idea of choice in which people will have to make decisions. You know, you make decisions and you can make better or worse decisions. I mean, you have this in pre-Christian uh, thinking about morality as well. Um, and I, I, so I don't, I don't disagree to some, to some extent with Benjamin's depiction of the, the so-called right as individualistic. But I do wonder if there is a kind of useful separation or maybe clarification to be made between uh, let's say the religious right or people who are motivated by a religious viewpoint and they don't all have to be right wing either I mean I think there are kind of left wing Christians as well um, all over the world or you know let's say liberal Christians socially liberal Christians um, and I suppose this kind of idea of um, a sort of judgmental right wing individualistic moralism um, that is um somehow just the inverse or the polar opposite of the sort of decadent desire based, you know, thing, which then ends up, ends up becoming an identitarian consumerist thing. And I wondered if there was maybe like a slightly, a slight, uh, de slightly deeper question 
which is basically about the relationship between politics and morality, because it does strike me that when, for example, social conservatives or moralists or of one stripe or another or Christian moralists or of left or right persuasion, what they're really doing when they're making these comments about contemporary society is they're making a claim about human nature and they're saying that there is um, a way in which it is better to live and there is a worse way to live. And it's not saying, um, therefore, that people who decide to live decadently according to the, you know, the, the model of desire are therefore without redemption. You know, I mean, it's, it's the old idea, as I suppose, like hate the sinner, hate the sin, not the sinner. You know, it's it's like uh, that people are like it's understandable, as Benjamin says, you know, why people would want to be why why people would get addicted to things, why people would eat too much, why people would, you know, become obsessed with playing computer games or whatever, whatever it is, everything that takes you uh, into a slightly more unhealthy position at the level of your own mental and physical state, right? And we all, we're all prey to this. It's very hard to live in a consumerist society and not get in too into something, right? It's a kind of constant battle to remain on the side of a sort of uh, straight and narrow path, whether you're religious or not, you know, like just even just keeping a, mod, a moderate weight is quite difficult, um, you know, when you're confronted by sort of donuts and crisps or whatever. Um, but I wonder if this deeper question about what politics really is in relation to these questions of human nature and morality, is is politics, Benjamin, always a translation of a deeper kind of ontological and moral claim about what the human being is? And how can, how can that possibly, well, how is that playing out um, in America? You know, that the, I don't know, it's, it's like, it does seem like the culture war is at the same time, is both superficial and irrelevant and getting away from the, pro- the questions of the economy and these deeper serious problems. And this is happening in Britain too. No one wants to talk about these deeper problems. Everyone just wants to talk about irrelevant stuff. No one wants to take responsibility. But it does seem that there is uh, this more profound question as well, which does underlie both the economics and the culture stuff which is to do with morality, and it's about the place of morality in politics. And I just wonder about, in your analysis, where is morality, whether it's religious morality or not, um, how would you situate it vis-a-vis economics and culture? That's a good question. So one thing I try to be very careful about in the book is to not say that faith and the right are the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I try to make the point that there are left-wing professionals in the faith space as well as right-wing professionals. Indeed, if you look at uh, churches and what kind of political activity comes from churches, there's an argument to be made that there's more left-wing activity these days out of churches than right-wing activity. If you poll people in churches about uh, whether as a church they're doing political action, the response rates tend to be higher for churches that swing more to the left than to the right at this point, which I think to some degree is indicative of an exhaustion on the part of the churches traditionally associated with the right. They're not very satisfied with the kind of politics that is being done in their name. Uh, so I, I would first want to make that distinction. Uh, second, I think the, the thing I really want to emphasize here is a kind of you know, sort of this kind of comes from my ancient Greek sensibility that 
a virtuous person has to be produced by a virtuous city. So that in some ways, the quality of, of the politics is a prerequisite for the quality of individual behavior, at least certainly at scale. Uh, and I think that there is uh, a set within the right that, and I make a kind of distinction between capital C conservative and lowercase conservative. There, I think in general, there's a conservative feeling that we ought to rein in our desires that were not our desires, that there's objective uh, morality independent and separate from whatever it is that we happen to want. And that can conflict with what we want. And we need to align ourselves with that rather than just going along with what we want. Uh, but there's also a kind of capital C conservative move to uh, blame particular people who aren't able to do that and to try to mobilize uh, people politically to go after those people and to kind of hound them and bully them. And it's fueled in part by the fact that on the progressive side, the tendency is to say, hey, if you happen to have a desire that is potentially constitutive of your identity and who you are, and if you're a conservative and you think that desires conflict with doing God's work or what's good or, or what's true, uh, if you think the body and, and what comes out of the body is often in tension with what's valuable, then when people are identifying with the bodily desires, that's, that's not going to strike you as right. And I think that the, the media in the right-wing space leans on that intuition to upset small C conservatives and turn them into capital C conservatives who are hostile and uh, aggressive toward a kind of enemy group that is lauding desire or identifying with desire. A lot of the time this happens through kind of uh, demonizing progressives as, as satanic in some way because they are identifying with desire or identifying with sin. And in, the, in that section, I talk about the kind of the, the sins that get identified with the progressives, gluttony and lust. And conversely, though, by getting so angry and judgmental about these progressive sins, the capital C conservatives take on pride and envy and wrath. And so it becomes two different groups, which are themselves you know, completely replete with sin in the faith sense. And I think it becomes difficult to really say that either one of them is successfully resisting desire. It's just uh, different desires that are being caved into. And they're being caved into in part because the left and the right wing media recognizes that it's good business to gin up this stuff. Uh, and both the left and the right-wing media get more clicks and more attention when they publish pieces that encourage people to identify with or to rationalize these behaviors. Uh, and they're different behaviors, depending on the progressive or the, or the conservative side. But in both cases, there's an economic impulse to do this. And that's where I really think this comes back to, you know, I think we need to view the left and the right as as a political economy, as industries. The left and the right in the United States are sectors that exist to make money, principally. Uh, and the way they make money is by activating these powerful emotions and feelings and getting people into uh, attitudes that you know, traditional conservatives would regard as, as you know, very sinful on both sides. Uh, and so I think that the conservative movement, such as it is, doesn't have a whole lot to do with faith. 
Uh, I'd make the same argument about the progressive movement. I don't think that it has very much to do with faith either. Uh, and this is why I kind of just try to separate faith and treat it. it I think that the most sincere people of faith are in the enclavist kind of spot. They're in a kind of despair attitude with politics and they want to get out of politics and into something real. And so they go into faith looking for something real. The issue is that professionals spill into every part of the society uh, because there's a kind of oversupply of professionals who want to lead politically. And there aren't enough jobs in the media, the civil service, the academy for all of them. There's a tendency for these professionals to move into other spaces and to try to use those other spaces as platforms from which to do politics. So we get in the faith space professionals who are trying to do politics through doing religion. Uh, we get this in sports. We get sports journalists who kind of took the Trump presidency as an opportunity to do politics as sports journalists. Uh, we get this in uh, you know, acting and all the celebrity pursuits, all the fandoms, people who would not have made it as academics or would not have made it as uh, you know, major you know, media figures, uh, journalists, uh, civil servants, people who, who couldn't do those things or didn't really fit into those roles, trying to use other professional roles as as bases, as economic bases for political action. And so this gradually reduces the set of places where people can engage with just questions of what's true. Um, that would be, I think. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I might locate the vices in slightly different places, but I, I you know, I, I don't disagree that there's sort of uh, Good, good and bad people who are the same people on both sides, <laughs> um, and I totally agree about the media, uh, you know, d divisiveness and, and the polarization. Um, just, just so on the on the point about cities, right? Like, so you're saying, well, actually, you know, we need to. Con it's about cities constructing the possibility, uh, the conditions for the possibility of people to be virtuous, right? And also about creating a society for those, as you say, always very nobly who are who want to write, who are able to write. You know, those that that position depends upon an entire mechanism and 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 network of 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 labour. You know, so that the few can can sit and 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 do that that work, and and there is this overproduction, like you say. But I'm just wondering, in a very blunt sense, the cities in America, the city in America, it, it you know, from all reports and videos and news and tweets, it looks like a lot of cities like L.A. and San Francisco and so on, and parts of New York are in a very bad state, right, which is to say that there are a lot of people who are very uh, unhappy, very uh, addicted, a lot of homelessness, a lot of, um, you know, kind of chaos, a lot of, you know, I, it, we've discussed this before and, you know, Helen has talked about L.A. and her experience of L.A. And one thing it seems like that is a very real possibility, or at least there, there might be a space for, even in the intractability of the, the the political system itself, would be for like a strong man mayor, right? In in one or more of these cities to come in and say, we need to clean up the streets, right? We are gonna use the police. We, you know, like a kind of broken windows kind of policy. We're gonna start with tiny, we're gonna remove all these people, we're going to put people back in asylums, we're going to imprison people for crimes, we're going to do the three strikes thing again or whatever, that you're going to end up with, 
you know, the conditions of possibility for a very, very harsh crackdown on antisocial behavior in city. And it's going to start from cities and you are possibly going to have this kind of desire for like a strong man figure. Um, and I, I do worry and wonder that the kind of, let's say, progressive or democratic response to antisocial behavior, including addiction and, and crime, is, isn't the right solution. Like it's not the right solution for people who are suffering from mental health problems and addiction and, and who are engaging in forms of petty crime and theft and, and who are maybe behaving in ways which are aggressive um, and not really great for people who are trying to get to work and so on. It's not to say we don't have sympathy for people who are suffering, right? Of course we do. But the left-wing response or the democratic response to those antisocial problems in cities does not seem to be working. A right-wing solution, if you like, does work, quote-unquote, but it works by being incredibly harsh. I'm just wondering if you see that as a possibility for some of these cities. Like, it seems like it's like people would vote for somebody who would promise to change these things in a perhaps not compassionate way. I think when it comes to... I would say that I think there's also a lot of symptoms of misery in the rural areas, too, in part because the rural areas have economically sure. uh, been worse off yeah. statistically than the cities over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, but I, I would say part of the reason that we're talking about the police all the time, both in terms of whether the police should get tougher or whether they should go away, is because... Uh, this is something that municipal government actually can control or state government actually can control. The police are one of the few things that the American government funds. They're one of the few public services that remain in some sense uh, well-funded. So, of course, one of the things you can do as the tax base shrinks is you could try to take money from the police to use it somewhere else to do something else. Uh, and another thing you could do is you could try to have the police perform more and more of the functions that previously were performed by other parts of the state. Neither one of these things are going to work because, A, the police are not able to perform the other functions of the state. They don't have the necessary skills, background training for any of that. Uh, so that's not going to work. At the same time, th there's no tax base and the police don't supply enough money to fund all of the things that the tax base used to fund. Uh, and because cities and states don't have border control, they're not able to prevent people from coming in and out. When individual U.S. cities or U.S. states try to go in an independent direction on law enforcement, on drug enforcement, on gun law, none of it can work because the borders are porous. You try to ban something, it just comes in across the invisible line that doesn't separate, say, Chicago from the rest of Illinois or Illinois from Indiana. Uh, so it's, it's really not possible to solve these problems at this level without engaging in these broader economic questions of why are there so many miserable people in the first place? Uh, why are there so many people who are under such stress that they uh, resort to the things that they resort to? Uh, and because there's no possibility of getting the federal government to act on any of that, and the states and the municipalities don't control trade policy and are locked in a tax struggle with each other constantly. Constantly, the states are looking to undercut one another on tax. Texas, the whole growth model for Texas is no income tax. So 
come on, move from California, move to New York. People run for president going, look, my southern state did so well under me because I got rid of the taxes and stole all the jobs from the northern states and turned them into lower paying, lower quality southern jobs. Uh, This is a how it works at the state and local level. And nobody wants to talk about any of that. So instead, we talk about what can the police do? Well, the, you know, the police are this kind of rump remnant of what used to be the American state. Uh, and it's not capable of doing what the right wants it to do. And of course, uh, it, there isn't enough money in it for it to be uh, deconstructed and, and used to fund uh, the kind of social programs that left-wing people want to fund. Ultimately, if you want to bring back those social programs, you need to restore the tax base. And you can't restore the tax base without dealing with this giant global financial system. So because I was going to say that, you know, that this strongman solution, right? I mean, you write, you write about Trump a lot in, in, in this book. It's like all of those things are not like, I mean, this is, the, I mean, it's interesting because obviously you spoke at the national conservative thing and it's interesting that this sort of like branch of conservatism is like maybe casting itself as some like radical solution. But the irony is it's like the conservative party it's largely, you know, hugely responsible for the shit show that they're complaining against, like, you know, like the wokeism and stuff like that, which is a result of precarity, which is a result of economic policies, you know, that, which is a result of denying the reality of the fourth industrial revolution and capital mobility and stuff. So, yeah, all of this, everything, I think, and I maybe I don't know if Benjamin, you, you agree, is, is futile without confronting material reality. Yeah, Nina was at NatCon, not me. Yeah, not not Ben. No, no, sorry. So I, I was responding to Nina's point there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, people want to focus on the things that it seems like you can do. Uh, and there's a point that Wolfgang Streak made in Buying Time, you know, that he wrote uh, maybe what ten years ago about this fobbing off of the population with institutions that can't do anything. There's a constant attempt to focus on the institutions that seem to have dynamism, that seem to be able to act, but their powers are actually so limited that they can't really do anything. And one of the things that we start to do as we can't get anything to work in the book, I talk about this, this focus on localism that sets in and both the left and the right start, the left starts talking about what cities can do. The right starts talking about what states can do. And maybe that will change. Maybe the right will start getting involved in municipal politics, as Nina suggests. But either way, when we start talking about cities and states, we're not talking about entities that can control borders, that can control trade, that can negotiate with foreign states about wages or taxes, that have uh, the military resources or economic resources to pressure states that don't comply with international agreements. Uh, So we end up in a a discussion that where there just isn't actually enough capacity to do anything. But it's the only discussion we seem to be able to have. The only people who seem to be doing anything are mayors and governors, but none of what they're doing actually makes any difference. How, How do we get the oligarchs to go mad? Well, they already are mad. I'm seriously but mad. mad. But mad in a way that allows for the possibility of something else, you know. Well, like, the thing is that, that the, the current state of things is not good for them. Um, and inequality is not good for them. I and mean, we talked about the, the, the point mm-hmm. about the you're sitting in a coffee shop and it costs you $30 to buy a cup of coffee and tell them someone's taking a shit outside the window, you know. that There's that. Um, you know, you can only enjoy yourself 
or, or or live in secure you know it's it's no fun being in a being in a world where you have to have armed whatever just to cross but, the road but surely that there is a great difference between the sort of middle class creative person desperately clinging onto their job drinking a 30 dollar coffee in a city and someone who has a well a I gated think community in an island or whatever the thing is surely. though i would say that the, you know we talked about the wga strike the other day but i think the reality is that a lot of these major cities are just a playground for high net worth and ultra high net worth people now and creative middle class people are competing and losing but um you know so the 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 place that in question there is full of just trust fund kids international trust fund kids um but so you know that so that um obviously like lockdown accelerated lots of things that were occurring already and the um shift of wealth from uh, the poor to the from 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 the exploited class to to the capitalist class was extreme. Anecdotally, um, I I keep track of certain net worths of people, and one person I looked at his wealth quintupled. Obviously, you have the likes of Elon Musk making like it was a hundred billion or two hundred billion in a year well, that during that period of time. I think his net worth has left now because of the whole Twitter stuff, but. All that happens in that situation is they everybody becomes more generally precarious. Their security becomes more precarious. And they all the commodities that they want to buy just become more expensive because they're competing against each other. It's totally pointless. And all, rich people don't spend their money. So basically, you have value that exists, but it's sequestered away. It is like totally destructive to the whole functioning of the system of which they are part. Like they exist in the world with all the other people who live in the world. It's really bad for them to destroy the world to this extent. Uh, a lot of their money is, is not real money in the sense that if they tried to spend it on consumption, it would produce inflation. Anything the rich try to buy with that pile of money the price of it inflates because it's a bunch of money that isn't actually being used to make things that's circulating around in asset values. Um, so I think, yeah, there, there's a point to be made here about the rich just inflating the things that they try to buy. But uh, I think, you know, more fundamentally, uh, with a lot of rich people, the ideological covering is futurism especially the tech billionaires, there's a kind of belief that, well, government doesn't work, politics doesn't work, but by running a business, you can change the world. And there's still a, a generation of these tech billionaires who have this mystique. People believe that you know Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, they ran businesses that changed the world. And so if you want to change the world, the thing to do is to go run a business. And I think we have to get to a point where these rich people start to realize that you don't change the world by running a business, that None of this stuff really makes any fundamental difference uh, to what life is really like. And I think we are still a little bit too close to the 90s computer era for rich people to get to that point where they're able to recognize that starting a charity, starting a business, these things are not going to fundamentally change the world. Companies and charities are too small and too weak to do anything altogether that important, especially about really big questions. Uh, but rich people want to believe that their corporations can make a difference because corporations are hierarchical structures where they can make the decisions without having to worry about 
ordinary people and democracy and and stuff like that. One of the things I talk about in the book is the you know the with fandoms and futurism in both cases you have people libidinally investing in corporations and in oligarchs because their confidence in government is so low that they think that they can get more out of believing in or defending particular rich people or companies and uh, that ultimately people have to get exhausted with that too if people are still in this you know i can get through life by believing in the ability of the disney corporation to make meaningful and satisfying forms of entertainment or i can get through life by believing in elon musk to you know generate new forms of technology that will eventually emancipate me from my circumstances and allow me to have space adventures if people are still in that kind of cope uh, and particularly if rich people are in that kind of cope then they can't get bored enough to become class traders part of what makes rich people class traders is this frustration with what they can do while remaining loyal to their class that there isn't actually anything meaningful for them to do uh, and that's what causes them to start getting creative and think about other kinds of things that they might do with their resources Yeah and I mean I think they they fail at being bataille in sovereigns as we've mentioned before like they don't redistribute the excess um this is a huge problem they don't throw huge parties or anything I mean they put it for each other but they don't redistribute the excess for um and make it clear to to the proles and the peasants that actually this is the the issue in a way um and that actually to be humble and to live well is is um you know if one is not desperate is actually uh, a much more blessed life than to be a very rich person. Um and I think this is one of the the very complicated things uh, particularly in relation to resentment and uh, Benjamin talks about resentment very very well in this book as a as a kind of diagnostic um tool which I think is is very accurately depicted and and you know of course it's resentment and envy and all of these things that are are mobilized precisely because they're very powerful emotions that um politicians and the media know uh work right they're forms of magic really politics and media are those kind of magic you know you're playing with people's people's uh people's deepest and darkest emotions really um i i do wonder i mean this this sounds sort of naive and slightly deranged but i think that's my my brand um whether we might see something like a religious revival and i don't mean in the sense of the pre-existing kind of uh, religious right or though you know let's be clear obviously benjamin also mentions the fact that religion's not not solely politicized you know there are many people who are religious on the left and there are also many religious people who are not political and i i, I agree i can see myself the temptation of exiting politics altogether and simply living in a contemplative way to the best of one's ability right like this is a great temptation i think of philosophers and religious people everywhere to to exit the world as much as possible because why be bothered with the world when you know eternity is a matter of thought you know that that it's something you can contemplate right like or whatever you know or or one can sit around and and think about the virtues or or simply the act of contemplation itself you know i mean you have Buddhism and entire practices which are simply like the encouragement of not doing very much you know and politics always seems on the side of wanting to do something right and there is an option which is not doing something you know which is actually very interesting i'm very interested in this not doing something um but i think it's a great temptation i and i suppose i'm just very 
I'm curious, maybe we should sort of um, finish shortly, but the weather, I, I mean, I think that futurism is itself a form of religious belief, right? And it's the spontaneous ideology of the billionaire Silicon Valley class, right? Like, you know, the belief in the future, the belief in technology, the belief in going to Mars, whatever. It can, the belief in immortality, the desire for those things, right? That we see it all across the elite class. It's always been what they wanted, actually. They always wanted the same things. They just have different technology, different eras. Whether this spontaneous ideology, the spontaneous religion itself could become, you know, what if we had a, an oligarchic elite that suddenly kind of converted to Christianity? Like, would, would things really be be different? I mean, some of the oligarchs probably are Christian, right? But if if that sort of religious sentiment then fused with the political desire for redistribution or something like this, I mean, it's completely not going to happen, of course. But I, I'm just wondering... At this at this level, like the, the ideology of the oligarchs, um, what if anything, like could happen? Well, I think a lot of that comes back to this question of can these kinds of sentiments get re-embedded in dealing with the economy? Uh, are rich people willing to do things that involve diminishing their wealth in the near term to have a different kind of society? Uh, are they willing to make those kinds of sacrifices? Uh, I think that uh, so far the answer in the United States has generally been no. Uh, also, I think in general the answer in the United States has been that, that rich people, most rich Americans, insofar as they do engage with politics, engage with it in a very normy way. A lot of them just kind of donate big money to candidates on one particular side of the culture war or the other, uh, and waste enormous amounts of money. I mean, people like Sheldon Adelson or uh, Soros waste enormous amounts of money trying to win cultural struggles that can't be won. Uh, a lot of them are not very sophisticated in the way they use money. And a lot of them are, are people who got rich in their own lifetimes. They're not from you know, big feudal dynastic families where eventually you just start sending your kids off to you know, study the arts because, you know, or to study theology because what else are you going to do? These are mostly people who came up looking to get rich in the 80s and 90s. And a lot of them even have the attitude that their kids shouldn't inherit their wealth because their kids should have to suffer and struggle and be entrepreneurial and all of that. A lot of them are self-consciously entrepreneurial people, uh, not people who are interested in eternal values uh, or something higher than uh, status seeking or wealth seeking or pleasure seeking. And that's the thing, uh, you know, the, you know, in, Max Weber talked about the maturity of the bourgeoisie. There's this, this idea that you have to get to a point where you're bored with the immediate benefits of wealth, uh, the immediate benefits of, of these things. Rich people in the United States are, are not intergenerational enough for that, really. Uh, you know, People like Bezos, people like Musk uh, are pretty close to first generation rich people. And so they, they really don't have a lot of uh, big or interesting ideas in those directions. They don't really have any kind of cultural education. Uh, so I think that in the near term, I don't really see that happening. Uh, I do talk in the book about, you know, could there be some kind of you know, labor movements working with some number of you know, class trader oligarchs? Could you have some kind of interfacing there? I think that the labor movement by itself is not even insofar as it, it might to say, let's say, be partially revived. Uh, 
it's not going to get back to the level it was at in the 70s without first having major successes in terms of economic restructuring. Uh, and even in the 70s, when the labor movement was much stronger and more powerful, it wasn't really in position to win in a confrontation with oligarchs. So I think ultimately, you would need some kind of revival in the labor movement combined with help from oligarchs who have, have gone off the rails. Uh, but to get those oligarchs to go off the rails, you'd need oligarchs who believe in something. Uh, and a lot of the time, when even when people do believe in something, they don't economically root it. Uh, you know, you look at, for instance, the Iranian government, which is in a way an attempt to do something like th that. It's an attempt to get religious and then use religion as a bulwark against modernity. Uh, the, you know, the issue in Iran is that a lot of the time there just isn't a capacity to grapple with the economic situation uh, effectively. The fact that Iran is uh, you know, a, me a medium-sized state without a whole lot of economic power limits the leverage that the Iranian political class has when it negotiates with the rest of the world and puts Iran in a uh, weak situation which over time leads to underdevelopment and leads to the population becoming dissatisfied with the model. And I think for other attempts to kind of revive religious sentiment with some kind of economic protectionism, uh, you know, the, the issue is, A, can you get rich people who actually believe in something? B, can those people who believe in something also recognize the degree to which uh, whatever it is that they value can only be achieved if there's economic change to back up and support and create a base for the kind of societies that they want to have? Uh, and, you know, see, will those people actually dialogue with workers or will they just kind of run off and try to do something that isn't translatable? Ultimately, uh, no alternative system is going to work in the United States unless ordinary soldiers are willing to support it unless ordinary people uh, are willing to get behind it, uh, because we have not yet progressed to the point where the military is so thoroughgoingly automated that you can automatically uh, securitize the society without having the interface with real people and what they actually think. And uh, a lot of different radical movements of both left and right varieties have forgotten about, ultimately, if you do want to try to create some alternative system, you've got to get those people on board. But I think uh, overwhelmingly, the major thing I come out of with this book is that we have a crisis of imagination. We really struggle to even imagine alternative systems that aren't just absolutely awful. Anything that I say is going to sound to people like something terrible. If I started talking about left-wing stuff, somebody would go, aha, like the Soviet Union. If you start talking about religious oligarchs, you go, aha, like Iran. Uh, if you start talking about your right-wing stuff, it's aha, it's Franco or it's Pinochet. Uh, there, there's nothing really that you can talk about without sounding like you're advocating for something terrible. And so the first thing is to just get imaginative enough to be able to articulate something that isn't doesn't sound repulsive to the overwhelming majority of the population. And we're not there yet. I mean, there was a, a piece uh, in Compact about East Germany. And somebody goes, oh, you know, there were certain redeeming features about East Germany. And all anybody goes, uh, does is go, aha, you know, terrible authoritarian system. Uh, and this is the thing that ultimately has us totally stuck in place in the States. As soon as we start trying to think past what we're doing, we just come up with things that sound too much like failed authoritarian things other people have tried to do that don't work. Uh, and so I think it really starts with, with getting imaginative and with uh, you know, breaking out of, of what we're currently doing 
and breaking out of the, the things that have already been tried that haven't worked uh, and not repeating the mistakes of other groups of people in other times and other places who have tried stuff that just really isn't up to the task. And I think the thing that really has, has hurt all of these attempts to do something other than, you know, liberal representative democracy is just not grappling with the global economic system and how it works, trying to insist that you can just will your way culturally or spiritually past those blocks, past those obstacles, uh, that you don't have to take care of the standard of living problem because all of the forms of cultural upset come back to people feeling like their lives are not functional, that they don't have meaningful roles, that there's no point to, to going on and carrying on. Uh, you're like that ad that's been playing for the Nintendo Switch where the, the poor middle-aged guy on the train says, you know, I, I go to work all the time and I hate my job and I hate my life, but then I get on, a, on the Nintendo Switch and I play Zelda and I feel like I can go and climb a mountain. Uh, you know, based on a comment that a guy left on a message board, uh, not a message board, on a... Uh, article about a new Zelda game in Japan. You know, this guy goes on this big, long thousand word comment about how playing Legend of Zelda made him like his life. And they make a commercial based on it. And they want you to feel inspired by it, but you just feel depressed. And, uh, yeah, we got to get a lot more imaginative first. And we all have to get real, real miserable before we'll get that creative. Okay, I'll wrap it up. We're going to go do the B-side. Maybe we'll continue. Maybe we'll talk about something else. We'll see. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.